Well, good evening. And I am not Christopher Frayling. I am Ian Blatchford, the director of the Science Museum. And I just want to introduce uh, speakers rather than one speaker and explain the format for this evening. Uh, but first of all, I just want to say why I'm so delighted we're talking about Frankenstein, because um, rather amazingly, I only read the book last year. And it's one of those books that you know you ought to read and you never quite get around to reading. And I have to say, I turned to the first page with some dread, only to discover it's absolutely staggering. So if anyone here has not read it, you really have to read one of the, one of the great works of English literature. But it, I'm also interested in the broader theme that we're going to talk about tonight, because I have the kind of job where I go to those secret agricultural bases and I walk through fields of Frankenstein foods. Obviously, I can't tell you where I've been. Um, but also, if you've seen um, the press recently, there does seem to have been the most extraordinary amount of debate about other issues deeply relevant to the Frankenstein story, which is the question about uh, gene editing and the future of uh, moral choices around uh, genetics. So Frankenstein the book, but Frankenstein the legacy, very much on my mind and I'm sure for all of you. Uh, the format this evening is Christopher is going to give uh, a lecture for about 40 minutes, and then there'll be a panel discussion. And so let me just say something about the, um, the characters involved. So first of all, we'll hear from Professor Sir Christopher Frayling, um, whose career is pretty remarkable, to put it mildly. Uh, he's here tonight as a cultural historian, but also in his uh, time on planet Earth, he's also been rector of the Royal College of Art, chairman of the Arts Council, a trustee of the Victorian Albert Museum, and is, of course, that extraordinary thing, a great scholar and great communicator. So as you can imagine, many in the academic world find that very annoying. But uh, having known uh, Chris for many years, he has a mind that glitters. I hope you'll take that as a compliment. Um, and after Christopher, the panel will be the following three people who will join him for discussion, and then there will be time for questions afterwards. And the first uh, of those panelists is Professor Alice Roberts, who is an anatomist and anthropologist, um, and is Professor of Public Engagement at the University of Birmingham. In fact, she's the first such professor. Uh, she'll be known to many of you, of course, as a regular uh, tele television presenter on, on BBC, and also as an important author of, of new books about uh, science, particularly uh, her recently acclaimed book, The Incredible Unlikeness of Being, Evolution and the Making of Us. The second panelist is Kim Newman, journalist and fiction writer, and he's here because of his great knowledge of film history and horror fiction. And then the final panelist is Ben Russell, who is curator of mechanical engineering at the Science Museum. But he's here for two reasons. First of all, because next year the Science Museum is doing the biggest exhibition ever on the history of robots, uh, a 500-year history. Uh, but also he's involved at the moment, not in an act of creation like Frankenstein, but something rather extraordinary, which is an act of resurrection. Because in 1928, there was a very famous British robot called Eric, uh, who was destroyed after his sensational success. And Ben has, with the help of the artist and roboticist Giles Walker, found the original drawings. And their aim is to do two things. First of all, to recreate Eric, but also an appropriate analogy with the Frankenstein book We've uh, raised so much money that we're not only going to restore Eric, but a female companion, 
Now, those of you who know the book know that really, really matters in the book. So no pressure, Ben, and I'm going to keep an eye on you. I don't want you going off exploring strange parts of the world, chasing after your creation. Um, anyway, without any further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce my great colleague and friend, Chris Frayling. Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. So Frankenstein, from novel uh, to myth, to bogeyman of science. Uh, and before I start, I'd like to ask an old friend to introduce this lecture for me. Can we have the first DVD extract, please? How do you do? Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Okay, due warning uh, given. Um, a few years ago, uh, I was asked on a radio program, if you could have been around on a single day in the historical past, which day would it have been? And as Ian uh, was kind enough to say, I was rector of the Royal College at the time, so the interviewer prompted me with some arty questions. Would it perhaps be the day when Michelangelo completed his painting of the Sistine Chapel ceiling in the Vatican in 1512? Or would it be the celebrated day in 1842 when the painter J.M.W. Turner lashed himself to the mast of a ship pitching in a storm off Harwich uh, to paint his masterpiece snowstorm, steam, steamboat off harbour's mouth, which is now in the Tate. Uh, did this actually happen? Art historians weren't sure, though Turner always claimed that it did. Well, you could find out for yourself if you were there. No, I replied. I don't want to be there for a day. I want to be there for an evening and a night. The night of 17th June, 1816, to be precise. Almost exactly 200 years ago, later this week, when the 18-year-old Mary Godwin, later to become Mary Shelley, told the creation scene from her Frankenstein as part of a family ghost story session in a plush holiday villa overlooking the eastern shore of Lake Geneva, about two miles outside the city. The other participants in that ghost story session were Lord Byron, aged 28, although he'd recently written in a hotel register, Lord Byron, 100, Percy Shelley, 24, Dr. Polidori, Byron's physician and companion, aged 20, a recent graduate of the University of Edinburgh, Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, also 18, eight months younger than Mary, and William, aged five months, who's often written out of the story. Uh, he was Percy and Mary's son, who is being looked after uh, by a Genevan nursemaid called uh, Elise. And uh, uh, William plays a part in this story as well. The ghost story session was like a family bet, uh, in a playful sort of spirit, but also competitive. 
a time to enjoy what Percy Shelley called the tempestuous loveliness of terror, the special pleasure of scaring the hell out of each other. And Mary Godwin certainly did that. It was the night before the first anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, June the 18th, 1816. But they weren't talking about Waterloo that night. The weather was unusually bad in June 1816. This is known as the year without a summer or the blood red summer. Uh, the vines and cornfields surrounding the lake were flooded. Uh, the rivers had burst their banks. The local harvest was ruined. Parts of the city of Geneva were underwater. The Genevans were still stoking their fires in June. And uh, the, um, uh, uh, there were some spectacular electrical storms over the lake, which I think were part of the story as well. Byron wrote in his poem, Darkness, how the fowls all went to roost at noon. And Mary Godwin called it a wet, ungenial summer. And early in June, she'd written in a letter, Unfortunately, we do not now enjoy those brilliant skies that hailed us on our first arrival to this country, Switzerland, on the 13th of May. An almost perpetual rain confines us principally to the house. The thunderstorms that visit us are grander and more terrific than any I have ever seen before. Lord Byron, in the third canto of his poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, described in characteristic style one of these storms which happened on the 13th of June and which he'd watched alone while standing on the iron balcony surrounding the house. He also enjoyed sailing out into the middle of the lake wearing only his nightshirt in order to get the full-on experience of thunderstorms. This is what he wrote in Child Harold. The sky is changed and such a change. O night and storm and darkness, ye are wondrous strong, yet lovely in your strength, as is the light of a dark eye in woman. That's very Byron. Um, far along, from peak to peak, the rattling crags among leaps the live thunder. This change in the weather, wrote Byron, would perhaps give them an opportunity to, quote, find room and food for meditation. Maybe it wasn't all bad to be confined into, this, into the villa uh, with the thunder outside. It now seems, as some of you may know, that this was all to do with a volcanic event on the other side of the world, Tambora on an Indonesian island, an eruption which led several writers in Western Europe to question the existence of a benign god. The Times newspaper, in discussing the weather in June 1816, referred to God's wrath, and the poets used the opportunity to react against more sentimental views of the landscape with more exact and detailed descriptions of this volcanic veil across the earth. And they all wanted to go boating on the lake, and they wanted to go exploring the local area around the lake in Rousseau territory. But they were cooped up indoors, rather getting on each other's nerves. The walled city of Geneva closed its gates at 10 o'clock sharp every night, so there was no opportunity for nightlife either. There was much talk about science inside the villa while the rains poured down. On June the 15th, the poets, and probably Dr. Polidori as well, had had a late night discussion about, quote, the nature of the principles of life and whether there was any probability of their ever being discovered and communicated a controversy known at the time as the Vitalism Controversy, which was rocking the Royal College of Surgeons at the time in a series of public lectures, between the spiritual on the one hand and the biological, although it wasn't called that yet, on the other. 
about where did the original spark of life actually come from? From God or from biology? From an assemblage of all the functions of the body, as one of the participants put it. It was a Richard Dawkins type debate, 1816 style, and the champion of the biological argument, Dr. William Lawrence, was Shelley's own doctor who treated him for his supposed consumption. Shelley was a bit of a hypochondriac and always thought he was dying of consumption, which he wasn't. But Lawrence was sacked from his professorship as a result of contributing to this debate. His opponent, representing the thesis that the vital spark, which gave life to flesh and therefore the soul, ultimately came from God, and his name was John Abernethy. Percy Shelley was already fascinated by vitalism. When he was at Oxford as an undergraduate, he'd filled his undergraduate rooms with electric equipment and tried to revivify, without success, a dead cat. The poets had also speculated about the experiments of the poet botanist physician, Dr. Erasmus Darwin, Charles's grandfather, and a proto-evolutionist who wrote, quote, of the journey from microscopic specks in primeval seas to its present culmination in man. And Mary Shelley writes, I speak not of what the Dr. Darwin really did or said that he did, but of what was then spoken of by Byron and Shelley as having been done by him, who preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Perhaps a corpse could be reanimated. Now Erasmus Darwin put over one of his theories uh, by inventing what he called a factitious spider which walked around on a metal salver by means of rotating magnets hidden beneath. Actually, Mary's strange reference to vermicelli in a glass case, which suggests that Erasmus Darwin was spending his time giving life to pasta, um, it sounds like the window of an Italian restaurant, you know, this sort of vermicelli in a glass case, was actually based on a confused reading of a footnote in Erasmus Darwin's The Temple of Nature, published in 1802. In this footnote, there was a mention of vorticelli, or wheel animals, protozoans which lived in gutters but were thought spontaneously to regenerate themselves in dry conditions. And there was also a mention in the same note of, quote, a paste composed of flour and water in which tiny dead eels could apparently revive themselves, even in a glass phial, with some degree of vitality, which to Darwin was another example of spontaneous generation. Flour and water and vorticelli became, in Mary Godwin's version, vermicelli. Whether the mistake was hers or whether Byron and Shelley got it wrong and she was transcribing their conversation, we can't be sure. The idea of reanimated pasta is about the only aspect of the Frankenstein legend which has never been made into a movie. <laughs> the, um, uh, and it is a wonderful idea these two poets spend a lot of time talking about pasta. Where Darwin's spider was concerned, some of the... Uh, uh, sorry, I've got to go back. Um, public demonstrations of galvanism, which was a word used at the time to apply to all forms of experiment involving electricity and organic matter, are demonstrations which Mary Godwin knew about by Luigi Galvani and his nephew and champion Luigi Aldini, seem to suggest that reanimation might be a possibility. Galvani's demonstration involved a metal rod applied to dissected frog's legs, which twitched when touched on a metal table. And it seemed to him to prove that the rod was releasing the animal electricity from inside the limbs. The twitch 
came with, with, from within the animal's nerves rather than from the electricity, he thought. Aldini went even further in an extremely gruesome experiment. In January 1803, he'd wired a huge voltaic pile, 240 metal plates, to the ear and mouth of a fresh corpse of a murderer called Thomas Forster, who'd been hanged at Newgate just one hour before for a demonstration at Mr. Wilson's anatomical theatre to which the public was invited. The result, according to Aldini, was, quote, the jaw began to quiver, the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and the left eye actually opened. A phrase we'll be meeting again in Frankenstein. This almost gave, as he put it, the appearance of reanimation. Where Garvin's spider was concerned, some of the more extreme thinkers of the Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment in the 18th century, had written of human beings as merely soft machines or meat puppets in works such as the philosophical tract by La Maitrie called L'Homme Machine, Man a Machine, uh, 1747, thrown down by chance at a given point on the Earth's surface by God the clockmaker. And this had led to an exploration of whether the behavior of living beings could be simulated by artificial means, which in the mid-18th century meant mechanical devices. One of the most celebrated of these was Jacques Vaucanson's wooden digesting duck, which had metal innards, and caused a sensation at Versailles by waddling across the floor over to the king, Louis XV, who fed the duck with biscuits, and then it excreted bits of biscuit all over the floor of Versailles, which to them proved that one day an artificial duck could be created. Louis XV was captivated. Perhaps the most advanced of these automata were the three from the workshop of the clockmakers from Neuchâtel, a mechanics and uh, theology graduates, Pierre Jacques Edreau and his son, Henri Louis. And I'm very interested in the Science Museum. They currently have an exhibition of clockmakers, uh, and it's very much from that tradition that this came. The, uh, if ever you're in Neuchâtel, go to the museum of the town hall, the Hotel de Ville, which is just near the center of the town, and these three automata are there. The first to be made is called the Scribe, 1769, and he represented a small child sitting at a Louis XV style stool, and his right hand holds a goose quill pen, which he dips into the inkwell, shakes it so that the ink comes off, and carefully writes, Les Automates Jacques Edros, or Jacques Edros Mon Inventeur, while his glass eyes followed the tracing of each letter. The scribe's piece de resistance, which raised most of the big issues in the man-machine debate, was the phrase, je pense donc je suis, I think, therefore I am. The second was the draftsman, uh, another small child, who, this is the back view of the scribe, Uh, the second was um, the, uh, the draftsman, 1774, another small child who drew a pencil portrait of Louis XV or a cartoon of a dog while holding down the paper with his right hand and blowing away the excess lead powder with his breath, powered by bellows in his chest. And the extraordinary thing seeing this character acting is that you're watching an 18th century mind doing an 18th century drawing which you can take away. It really is a very philosophically a very strange thing. The third, which was considerably larger, was the musician, a teenage girl in a brocade dress who played a selection of compositions on a pipe organ in the shape of a wooden harpsichord. Unlike 
less complex robots, she really did touch the keys to produce the notes. And at the end of each piece give, gives what seems to be a rather self-satisfied sidelong glance at the audience with her glass eyes. All three automata in full working order, as I say, are now in Neuchâtel. And if you're very, very nice to the technician, as I was, he actually gets them going for you. And I, I was watching this lady go through her paces, uh, playing this piece, and she suddenly started playing some duff notes. And he said to me, I think she's tired. <laughs> you know, let me out of here. Can we have the second DVD extract, please? There she is. Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley also visited Neuchâtel, the home of these robots, or automata, made by local clockmakers in the 1780s and still going strong. They were toured across Europe in a blaze of publicity, and whenever they gave a performance, they raised some of the big questions of the day. Could the behaviour of people be simulated by artificial means? What did make humans tick? One mechanical boy left a mind-boggling message to posterity in neat 18th century handwriting. I think, therefore I am. One of the phenomena which peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame. Whence, I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? Okay. The, um, uh, uh, as I say on that voiceover, that uh, Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley eloped to Europe in summer 1814, uh, and uh, she was only 16, and uh, uh, they went up the Rhine, and they visited Neuchâtel, and these automata were on show in Neuchâtel at the time. Now, I believe she must have seen them, but uh, she doesn't refer to them in her journal. That uh, the 19th to 21st August 1814, they found, uh, that, that they found themselves in Neuchâtel. And when Mary Godwin wrote about the discussions about science that took place in the villa, she actually didn't talk about automata, but the reanimation of dead tissue, the reanimation of dead creatures, rather than the creation of artificial people. Percy Shelley had read The Elements of Chemical Philosophy, 1812, by Humphrey Davy, and in June 1816 was encouraging Mary Godwin to do the same. And in fact, uh, uh, Davy's published lectures were to find their way into the book Frankenstein in Professor Waldman's curriculum for the University of Ingolstadt, where Victor Frankenstein studied in the novel. It's a kind of parody of Humphrey Davy's lectures. Mary had grown up in a household, the Godwin household, where the latest scientific discoveries were often discussed at the dinner table, sometimes with Humphrey Davy there himself. He was a family friend. And her father, William God Godwin, disapproved strongly of the institutions of science, but was fascinated by their discoveries. Strangely enough, 
Humphrey Davy had stayed for a time in Geneva, just down the road from the Holiday Villa in 1814, where he mounted several experiments. Did Mary know that? We don't know. Where mythologies of science were concerned, Mary Godwin, in early 1816, had been reading about Prometheus, the Prometheus mid myth in Ovid's Metamorphosis, a version of the Dr. Faust story in a book called De Lallemagne about Germany, though there were no devils in her novel. And, uh, but it's interesting that the real-life Faust was expelled in 1528 from the University of Ingolstadt, which is where she set Victor Frankenstein's education. And she'd been reading a recent retelling in French of the story of Pygmalion and Galatea, in which a beautiful sculpture is animated into life by the gods, taking pity on the sculptor. Anyway, two nights after that discussion about the nature of the principles of life, which roamed over Erasmus Darwin, Humphrey Davy, the vitalist controversy, and possibly automata, um, on June 17, 1816, the combination of science and ghost stories reached its climax. And Mary Godwin began her story. Here's the earliest version we have in the manuscript, which is currently in the Bodleian Museum. It was on a dreary, remember this 18 year old girl, they're all, the poets, uh, uh, Byron told the first vampire story in English prose. Shelley told a strange story about a grandmother and a skeleton. Uh, we're not quite sure of the story that Dr. Polidori told, but Mary came down the stairs and did this. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld my man completed and with an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me and endeavoured to infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was about one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the window panes and my candle was nearly burnt out when by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. Remember Aldini's experiment? I breathed hard and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Two of the great genres of popular literature, the foundation of huge industries of mass culture, science fiction, scientific romance, and the vampire story, were born that night of June the 17th. And as I said on that radio program a few years ago, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, eavesdropping on that moment. It must have been one hell of a night, and it was my choice of historical moment to be transported. Rather surprising, the program which expected me to talk about Michelangelo and things. Its legacy is to be seen all over the world on small and large screens, in print and online, in graphic novels, comics, and even on cereal packets and lollipop wrappers. It's been argued, and I agree, that the real creation myth of modern times, the era of genetic engineering and artificial intelligence, is no longer Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's no longer Genesis. The real creation myth is Frankenstein, born 200 years ago, um, and. Uh, I'm delighted that the Science Museum is celebrating the bicentenary. Some examining boards for A-level have rather eccentrically decided to celebrate the bicentenary by removing Frankenstein from the syllabus. <laughs> Let's take a more detailed look at the events leading up to that night and how it all came about. 13th May, 1816, Percy Shelley, Mary, and their five-month-old son, William, plus Claire Clermont, checked in at Monsieur Desjans' Hotel d'Angleterre facing the Alps on the western shore of the lake at Secheron, and this was the view from the hotel. Uh, it was a three-story building set back from the shore off the Geneva to Lausanne Road, and the main building was demolished in 1845 
but one pavilion has survived just beyond today's Parc Mont Repos, and it has a plaque. In French, here there was built a hotel where Byron and Shelley stayed in days gone by. No mention of Mary, as indeed there weren't on any of the plaques associated with that summer. There was a little harbour where Monsieur Desjean hired out sailing and rowing boats for the lake. Mary Godwin wrote, we can see the lovely lake, blue as the heavens, which it reflects and sparkling with golden beams. The opposite shore is sloping and covered with vines. Gentlemen's seats are scattered over these banks and beyond. In the midst of its snowy alps, the majestic Mont Blanc, highest and queen of all. A week later, on May the 20th, George Gordon, Lord Byron, Dr. Polidori, a valet, two servants, two drivers, and assorted domestic animals arrived in a huge coach at Secheron. They'd left England at the end of April, Byron under a cloud because there was a rumor that he was having an incestuous relationship with his half-sister. Byron had given as his forwarding address, Milord Biron, post restant, Geneva. It had been Claire Claremont who'd briefly been his lover, 10 minutes of pleasure, a lifetime of pain, as she put it, who persuaded Byron to stop over in Geneva. Unbeknown to Byron, Dr. Polidori had been commissioned by the publisher John Murray to write a secret journal of their travels, uh, so he was busy taking notes every evening, and that is the primary source for what happened. Maybe part of the attraction for Geneva for Percy and Mary was precisely because Humphrey Davy had prepared the ground. On May 26, 1816, Byron and Polidori went over to the other side to Cologne to do a recce at the Villa Diodati and to discuss the rent, which came down to 25 louis a month. Polidori wrote, the view from this house is very fine, beautiful lake at the bottom of the Crescent in Gen is Geneva, returned to Secheron. Again, Byron may have heard about the villa from previous visitors. William Beckford, for example, author of the Gothic romance Vathek, had stayed almost next door for 18 months in 1778 and written much of his novel Vathek by the shores of Lake Geneva. May 27th, Lord Byron dined with Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley at the hotel, and Polidori wrote, LB met Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, her stepsister, and Percy Shelley. Dined, P.S., the author of Queen Mab, bashful, shy, consumptive, separated from his wife Harriet, keeps the two daughters of Godwin, Mary and Claire, who practice his theories. And that was a reference to the fact, of course, that Percy and Mary, uh, Percy had left England and left his wife Harriet behind and two small children and had run off with Mary uh, in um, uh, fulfilling William Godwin's ideas in theory of free love. Actually, in practice, Godwin disapproved wholeheartedly because it didn't do much for his social position. A couple of days later, the Shelley party, plus Elise and William, secured a small four-roomed property across the lake belonging to a Monsieur Jacob Japuy, the Maison Chapuy, Montalegre, a stone cottage of two stories overlooking the water, just down the slope from the villa, with access to a small harbour where Byron kept his rented sailing ship, La Voile. The cottage was demolished in 1883, but the stable next door survives, as does a stone stairway in the garden. The villa had belonged to the Diodati family since Gabriel Diodati supervised its building in the early 18th century, and the current incumbent, Edward Diodati and family in 1816 kept it unoccupied in the summer months, 
so they could rent it out to well-heeled visitors. And the Diodates lived for those months in a much smaller house, uh, almost next door to Mary Godwin. The alternative name of the villa was the Villa Belle Rive, because that was the name of the area right beside the villa. And in Frankenstein, the house of Victor Frankenstein, his family home, is called Belle Rive. So what you're looking at is Frankenstein's house. It was a two-story house in grey stone, very substantial basement, a first floor on three sides with an iron balcony, well appointed with great views, and about the least sinister house that you've ever encountered. That's the original wash basin, which I like to think uh, they kind of, <laughs> after a heavy evening of telling ghost stories, they splashed themselves with it. But that dates from the original of the house still. Um, and there we are in the living room, which we'll come back to. The house boasts a plaque. Oh, sorry, this is the veranda from which Byron watched the storms over Lake Geneva. There's a famous print in the early 19th century, which became a bestseller of Byron. I couldn't resist <laughs> sitting on the chair and having fantasies. Um, there's a plaque on the side of the house. Lord Byron, English poet, author of The Prisoner of Chillon, lived in the Villa Diodati in 1816 and composed the third chant of Child Harold. And beneath it, there's a more recent one that says, also the poet Shelley, who composed Mont Blanc. No mention of Mary Godwin or Frankenstein, just to the poems which describe the local area, Child Harold's pilgrimage and Mont Blanc. And it has to be said that Swiss plaques on buildings are very often like this. Uh, I was driving in Neuchâtel uh, recently, and I went past a pub called the Lion d'Or, the Golden Lion, and it was where Jean-Paul Marat was born, the great revolutionary leader of the French Revolution, a very famous figure. And the plaque on the side of the Lion d'Or said, here was born Jean-Paul Marat, médecin suisse. And you think, hang on a minute, that wasn't actually the most important thing about his life, but uh, there we go, that's how it is in Switzerland. Byron was convinced that John Milton had stayed in the Villa Diodati. Uh, he hadn't for the simple reason that the house wasn't built in Milton's lifetime. But Milton had stayed with the Diodati family in the old town in 1639. And during the events of the night of 17th June, Milton's Satan would have felt very much at home. Paradise Lost is one of the key books that Frankenstein's creature most enjoys reading. Indeed, it provided the epigraph to the whole novel. Did I request thee, maker from my clay, to mould me man? Which is the angel to God. Byron, oh, there we are, yeah. Byron moved into the villa on June the 10th. And around this time, Claire Claremont announced to him that she was pregnant. This was received coolly. And uh, Byron uh, was actually uh, behaved abominably to her and then proceeded to use her to copy out the long third canto of Child Harold's pilgrimage as he wrote it. Uh, the canto was completed by the 27th of June. But Byron did, however, to con continue to sleep with Claire. As he wrote to his half-sister, what could I do? A foolish girl, in spite of all I could say or do, would come after me. I couldn't exactly play the stoic with her, could I? And again, I never loved nor pretended to love her, but a man's a man, and if a girl of 18 comes prancing to you at all hours of the night, there is but one way. Claire's daughter, Alba or Allegra, was born in January 1817 and died aged five in an Italian convent. Byron treated them both abominably. Meanwhile, where Mary was concerned, as she later wrote, incapacity and timidity always prevented my mingling in the nightly conversations of Diodati. They were, as it were, 
entirely tete-a-tete between Shelley and Byron. She was a little scared of Byron and very inhibited. I mean, remember, she was 18. She'd never been to university. Uh, she was about the age when people start an undergraduate course that studies Frankenstein today. And there she was, thrown into this situation. It's clear from Polidori's diary that Byron always preferred to dine alone with Shelley. Dined with S, thence to S, to S in a boat. Mary, meanwhile, was put to work copying out some of Byron's verses. But Mary Godwin certainly felt the stress. She was the daughter of two of Percy Shelley's favourite political philosophers, Mary Wollstonecraft, author of The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, who died giving birth to her, and William Godwin, who'd written political thrillers such as St. Leon and also an inquiry concerning political justice, but who disapproved strongly of Shelley running away with her. Percy Shelley called her a child of love and light. And as Mary later wrote, my husband was from the first very anxious that I should prove myself worthy of my parentage and enroll myself on the page of fame. And again, as daughter of two persons of distinguished celebrity, Shelley was always most energetic in his exaltations that I should cultivate any such talent as I possessed to the utmost. No pressure then. Percy's Mary, uh, Percy and Mary constantly read and wrote together. They liked discussing their day's reading last thing at night. They ate vegetarian food. They traveled everywhere together. They talked of how to treat fellow humans with love, charity, and equal rights. And both of them did without sugar, which they reckoned was politically incorrect because it was produced by slaves on West Indian plantations. In the novel Frankenstein, the creature learns how to live from three books that he is reading. He learns about human friendship from Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. He learns about human achievement from Plutarch's Parallel Lives or The Lives of the Noble Romans. And he learns about himself from Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. Mary Godwin had lost her first child, a ba baby girl, on the 6th of March, 1815. And she was particularly anxious throughout that June about the health of her son, William, born the 24th of January, 1816. It's been suggested that beneath the science of Frankenstein, some of these anxieties about birthing and childcare found their way into Frankenstein, the story, after all, of a motherless child, and in some ways, as has been put, a phantasmagoria of the nursery. What happened then between these highly strung individuals in that villa with the weather outside getting worse has been described in three main sources. There was Percy Shelley's published preface to the first edition of Frankenstein, September 1817, where he describes the terrible weather, the cheery blazing wood fire indoors, the ghost story session, and the playful desire for imitation between Byron, and Shelley and Mary. No mention of Claire or Polidori, or indeed, no mention of William, his son. The second published account, which is the best known one, was in Mary Shelley's introduction to the 1831 popular, reworked, cut-down edition of Frankenstein, written 15 years after the events it described, by which time all the male members of the party were dead. This is where the conversation she overheard about the principles of life, Erasmus Darwin, and reanimating corpses came from. And she specifies that the idea for the ghost story session was inspired by a two-volume collection of spooky stories which Byron bought in Geneva called the Phantasmagoriana, translated from the German into French and read aloud to them by Byron. 
One of the stories, the second one, is called The Family Portraits, and in it, a character suggests, quote, everyone is to relate a story of ghosts, and that's what triggered the game, which may well have been much more competitive than Percy or Mary remembered. The third source is Dr. Polidori's journal, the only one written at the time and published later in the 19th century by his aunt Charlotte, who censored it badly. And unfortunately, the bits she censored have disappeared. Byron's memoirs, which covered this period in his life, were to be torn up and thrown into the fire by three of Byron's closest friends shortly after he died. They were thought to be utterly unsuitable for public consumption and very, very scandalous. So we're never going to read those. And oddly enough, Mary's journal is missing for June 1816, although it resumes in July. Another contemporary source, this time unpublished, is to be found in the state archives in Geneva, uh, the police records, which show that three things had happened in the Villa Diodati just before the ghost story session. Firstly, Byron reported that his boat's anchor and the fixtures and fittings on his yacht had been stolen from the harbour and then took the law into his own hands by threatening some completely innocent local residents. The second was Polidori roughed up a local apothecary in Geneva, breaking his spectacles and throwing his hat into the gutter because he'd supplied him, or rather Lord Byron, with some substandard drugs. This resulted in a warrant for the doctor's arrest. But the most interesting case, a couple of nights before the ghost story session, was a bungled breaking and entering attempt at the Villa Diodati itself, which according to the police records, resulted in a lieutenant suggesting that the neighboring cabarets and bars should be placed under observation to see if any foreigners and suspicious looking people were hanging around. The Genevans don't seem to have been too keen on foreigners. It had not occurred to the lieutenant that the culprits might be citizens. I mentioned the 1831 uh, cut down edition just to put some imagery in your mind, this is uh, the, the first edition of Frankenstein came out anonymously in 1818 with the preface by Shelley signed anonymously. Several reviewers thought it was by Shelley. Uh, one or two got a whiff of the fact that it might be written by Mary. Some didn't like it at all. The Tory press disliked it because they thought it was dedicated to William Godwin and they thought the book might be a little bit radical. Whereas some of the others, Walter Scott for example, thought that it was terrific. But by now, Mary is no longer claiming maternity of her own text. But in 1831, it comes out, and it's Frankenstein by Mary W. Shelley, with some drawings at the beginning by Theodore von Holst, who was a disciple of Fusely, the Swiss artist who uh, did The Nightmare, the famous painting of 1782. And this is, it's interesting, because he sort of medievalizes it. You know, you're not clear what period the story is supposed to take place. It feels like the 1780s, but in the pictures, it looks like a medieval romance. That's Frankenstein leaving home. That's the one picture which we know that Mary Shelley saw of the creature. And there's lots of interesting things about it, which I'll go into a little bit later. But uh, uh, firstly, it's not a bug-eyed monster. It's, he's built like a Chippendale and actually lustrous black hair, and he looks rather beautiful. And Frankenstein is a young research student aged about 18, rushing out of the room in this postpartum moment, terrified of what he's done, not the more mature scientist that appears in, uh, uh, in, in the film versions. But that, that was seen by Mary Shelley. Interestingly, this is uh, around about the same time, this is a version of Faust illustrated by Theodore von Holst, where he uses precisely the same iconography in the background, you know, sort of skulls, tables, medieval, which is not described in the novel at all. There's no Gothic interiors in the novel, but von Holst made up for that in his illustrations. 
In summer 1816, Geneva seems from the documents to have been swarming with upmarket British tourists. Some of them were associated with Allied troops who'd recently defeated Napoleon and hadn't gone home yet. Others stopping over on their grand tours. Others still coming to see the latest invention of the Romantics, the Alps. This was, after all, the first time for 15 years that tourists could travel freely around the continent because of the wars. Tourism and Switzerland were becoming synonymous. Here's Polidori's diary. June 15, Shelley, etc., came in the evening, talked of my play, which was worth nothing. Afterwards, Shelley and I had a conversation about principles where the man was to be thought merely an instrument. June 16, laid up. Shelley came and dined and slept here with Mrs. S, he refers to Mary as Mrs. S, and Miss Claire Claremont, wrote another letter. He wasn't a born writer, Polidori, I can tell you. Anyway, June 17, dined with Shelley here. The ghost stories are begun by all but me. June 18, Shelley and party here. So the Shelley party was staying in the Villa Diodati overnight and not going down to the Maison Chapuis down the hill. Now I want to show my, for, for the next clip uh, something about the myth and reality of what happened next. Firstly, an account of that evening, uh, uh, which I did, and then the most famous mythologization of it as the prologue to the 1935 Bride of Frankenstein by James Whale, where it's reenacted in very over-the-top fashion. So let's have the next clip, please. The weather had turned nasty, and Mary and Percy were cooped up inside this elegant 18th-century villa. They'd come to visit the superstar poet, George Gordon, Lord Byron, who was renting the house, but tensions between them soon began to show. Mary's excitable stepsister, Claire, had come halfway across Europe to announce to Byron that she was pregnant by him. Furious, Byron, mad, bad and dangerous to know, responded with the question, is the brat mine? Dr John Polidori, Byron's companion and physician, was a humourless man who fancied himself as a bit of a poet, but was seriously outclassed in the company and eminently teasable. Mary, meanwhile, suspected that Percy might be having an affair with Claire, while Byron rather hoped he was. When these highly strung people started passing the time by telling each other ghost stories as a kind of family bet, the result was one of the most bizarre evenings in the history of world literature. The story of the writing of Frankenstein is almost as famous as the book itself and has become a myth in its own right. How beautifully dramatic. The crudest, savage exhibition of nature at her worst without. And we three. We elegant three within. I should like to think that an irate Jehovah was pointing those arrows of lightning directly at my head. The unbowed head of George Gordon, Lord Byron, England's greatest sinner. But I cannot flatter myself to that extent. Possibly those thunders of our dear Shelley. Heaven's applause for England's greatest poet. What of my Mary? She is an angel. You think so? And yet you have written a tale that sent my blood into icy creeps. <laughs> Look at her, Shelley. Can you believe that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? A monster created from cadavers out of rifled graves? Such an audience needs something stronger than a pretty little love story. 
So why shouldn't I write a monster? The real story of the telling of Frankenstein took place not in a vast baronial hall, but here in Byron's holiday villa, the Villa Diodati, in the living room on the first floor. It all began with this book, a collection of ghost stories called Phantasmagoriana, translated from the original German into French and published some four years before. Lord Byron managed to get hold of a copy and taking his cue from the second story in the collection, suggested in a playful spirit that they should each have a hand at trying a tale of terror for themselves. What happened next was recalled by Mary Godwin, by then Mary Shelley, in print some 15 years later. They were all cooped up in the villa because of incessant rain, she says, and four of them took part in the ghost story session. But the illustrious poets soon got bored with the game and gave up. She, meanwhile, was frantically busying herself to think of a story. Each morning I was asked, have you thought of a story? And each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. Eventually, she came up with the creation sequence of Frankenstein, which shocked and surprised everyone, as well it might. So, um, the, um, that's, you know, the, the, the beginning of, I love the beginning of uh, The Bride of Frankenstein, where the whole thing is turned, I mean, the point was they, they were so successful in 1931 in dispatching the creature and uh, uh, question mark Frankenstein, although they added an ending which had a happy ending, that they couldn't work out how on earth to do a sequel. So they decided by 1935 simply to go back to the Villa Diodati. Tell us another one, Mary. Well, I didn't tell you the sequel, which is all about the Bride of, Fra the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, interestingly, Byron clearly hadn't read the story because he says Frankenstein, a monster created out of pieces. He associates Frankenstein with the monster rather than with the scientist, which is uh, a common mistake, but not one you'd expect from Lord Byron. So, July, a week-long visit to Chamonix in France, into the Alps, and if the atmosphere of Diodati surrounds the creation scene of Frankenstein, the atmosphere of the Alps is the second volume, which is the creature's autobiography. Uh, they went up to uh, the Mer de Glace, uh, the Sea of Ice, a confluence of three glaciers in the shadow of Mont Blanc. They couldn't get up to start with because the weather was so bad, but on the 23rd of July they made it. Mary, the appearance of vast and dreadful desolation. When we had mounted considerably, we turned to look at the scene. A dense white mist covered the veil. The rain continued in torrents. We were wetted to the skin, so that when we had ascended more than halfway, we resolved to turn back. I write my story. That's the very first reference in Mary's uh, journals to writing the story. On 25th July, they reached the Mer de Glace. This is the most desolate place in the world. And then back in the villa, between the 1st and the 20th of August, she refers to write my story 20 times. And basically, what she did was she bought a notebook in Geneva uh, and uh, started filling it uh, with the first draft, firstly in short story form around the creation scene, and then she decided to turn it into a full-length novel. And in the Bodleian, they have the notebook, it's a blue-coloured notebook, which she purchased in Geneva, and a second volume, which was purchased in Britain when she got back, 70,000 words, 152 pages, 77 leaves. And she used those notebooks between August, uh, July 1816 and April 1817. And what's so interesting about them is that they are much more positive about science than the novel turned out to be. The focus of the story in her first draft is the education of a young scientist. 
It's Victor Frankenstein going to Ingolstadt University, details of the curriculum, going through the history of science from the medieval alchemists through to modern experimental work, feeling that modern scientists aren't ambitious enough, they're too specialized, and wanting to answer the big questions. But there's a Promethean feeling to the first draft. The second draft, which she wrote, and uh, which was uh, corrected by Shelley, likely, I think it's 300 corrections in the notebooks, becomes more of a moral tale, more slightly, but not as much as the final novel. So clearly something happened in between Diodati with all these discussions about science and when the book was published, which make it darker and grimmer about science. The, um, uh, it's, very, it's been published actually by the Bodley and Complete, uh, the, the contents of the two notebooks, and they're really interesting. She then comes back uh, at the end of August uh, via Le Havre to Portsmouth and settles in Bath in Five Abbey Churchyard, where uh, in a townhouse, which is next to the pump room, she wrote most of the rest of the story over that autumn. I wrote to Bath City Council a few years ago asking for a plaque to be put on what is now the pump room complex. And they wrote a letter back predictably saying they had had various letters about Percy Shelley, uh, but that Frankenstein, wasn't that really an invention of Hollywood? We get several requests of this kind, yours sincerely, no plaque. So no plaque on the Villa Diodati, no plaque on the hotel in Secheron, no plaque in Bath, and then they moved to Albion Cottage, Marlow, where there is a plaque to Percy Bysshe Shelley. No mention of Mary at all. But in, in Bath, she writes, uh, she extends Victor's education, she uh, describes Waldman, Dr. Waldman's lectures in detail, uh, she uh, adds the bit about the creature learning uh, language by watching the de Lacy family, and she added the framing device of the Arctic explorer, Robert Walton, on his way to the North Pole. It was a dreadful autumn, and the extraordinary thing is that an 18-year-old girl managed to write while this was going on. Harriet Westbrook Shelley, Shelley's wife, killed herself in the serpentine. She was heavily pregnant, not by Shelley. Mary's half-sister, Fanny, overdosed on laudanum and died probably of her own hand. Claire gave birth to her baby daughter, Alba, who was to become Allegra Baron in March 1818, when Baron promised faithfully to look after her, but deposited her in a convent instead and forgot about her. And Percy and Mary were married in London at the end of December, a few days after Harriet died, uh, somewhat against their principles, but the, to the delight of William Godwin. Meanwhile, Mary continued writing throughout all of that. Imagine the kind of pressure that she was under when writing the full version of her novel. The story was turned down by two publishers, including Murray, Byron's publisher, and um, eventually a rather downmarket publisher called Lackington's of Finsbury Square, London, bought out 500 copies. She was paid 28 pounds, 14 shillings, three volumes. Uh, it was anonymous, as I say. And then you get the third, the third edition, 1831, cut down with various changes. It's shorter, it's one volume. She's excised most of the references to the vitalist controversy. Victor has more of a conscience about what he's doing. Godwin's ideas about political justice have almost completely gone. And she writes an introduction, which is about the sort of blood and thunder circumstances out of which the book came, which was great for sales, but created the impression that this is a Gothic novel rather than a piece of science fiction. And you get the illustrations by Theodore von Holst. 1823, by 1826, there are already six versions of Frankenstein on the stage in London. 
the, uh, Mary Shelley didn't write her own play, so she didn't establish copyright. It was public domain immediately. 1823, uh, Man and the Monster, where uh, the, part was, the part of the creature was played by Thomas Potter Cook. And outside the theatre, uh, some placards professing to come from the Friends of Humanity said this, do not take your wives, do not take your daughters, do not take your family which ensured the success of the entire thing, English Opera House. Um, Mary Shelley went to see this version and was rather impressed, not by the play, which she said was terrible, uh, but about the creature who became completely inarticulate. All he can do is grunt, but he's very plaintive. And as she said, he's seeking, as it were, for support and approval. He's trying to grasp the sounds all around him. She found that rather moving. She liked also that in the programme, instead of putting the name of the creature, they have a question mark. T.P. Cook, as indeed they did in the Boris Karloff film. Uh, various changes have happened. There's a, uh, whereas Mary simply mentioned, I gathered the instruments of life around me, that's all she says about the operation. It lasts about 10 minutes on the stage with lots of Jim Cracks, whiz bangs, and uh, bubbling retorts and sparks. So the operation becomes important. Frankenstein develops a comic servant called Fritz, which gives him someone to talk to during the operation scene on, on behalf of the audience. The monster becomes voiceless, is called the monster, whereas in the novel he's called the creature until the creation moment, at which point he begins to be called the monster. And he's so larger than life that they decide that he has to die in an avalanche at the end, uh, the first of many apocalyptic endings, usually a polar storm or Mount Etna erupting or some cosmic event which does for the creature. So already the die was cast. 1826, T.P. Cook, 1910, Edison, 1930 on the stage, 1931, Karloff, 35, 39, and we're away. Something's happened, story. Uh, uh, the creature looks more and more like a road accident as we go along. And, uh, and the other thing, which I've never quite understood, we can perhaps discuss in the panel, is why his scars never get better. You know, about two years uh, elapses between the operation and the end, but he always looks like a road accident. I mean, it's very, very strange. Anyway, uh, and that all emerges from the theatrical tradition of the 1820s. Edison, 1910, where uh, uh, there's alchemy, a bubbling retort, and rather nicely, the monster dissolves in a mirror at the end as if he's Victor Frankenstein's alter ego, which is actually quite subtle. That was a lost film until recently in a private collection, but it's now available on DVD. There's the creature appearing through the curtains. And then 1926, the reason I mentioned Metropolis, Germany, Fritz Lang, is that this is the origin of the operation scene in the films. You have, it's, uh, this is the scientist, Dr. Rotwang, and although it's set in the year 2000, everyone is dressed in modern costume except Rotwang, who's dressed like a medieval alchemist in a jerkin with a, a stuffed crocodile over his door. Uh, he's a strange man. <laughs> Um, and although the entire city consists of skyscrapers, he lives in this house. This is where the scientist lives, in this strange little sort of medieval hovel. Uh, this is one of Fritz Lang's drawings of the centre of metropolis. And it's very interesting because all these skyscrapers and things, 1926, and there's the cathedral, and Fritz Lang's crossed it out and says, kill the cathedral. <laughs> we, want, we want only modern buildings, except for the scientist. Uh, so he puts in a helipad instead of the cathedral. Uh, and the operation scene is Rotfang trying to turn uh, Maria, a schoolteacher who's uh, a bit of a radical firebrand, 
into a robotic Maria who's going to cause all sorts of mayhem. So he transfers the life force from one Maria into the robot Maria. And all the whiz-bangs of Hollywood's operation scenes, I think, comes from Dr. Rockbang. He has one black glove because of a nameless accident. Remember Dr. Strangelove? That was a reference. Another reference is Nikola Tesla, uh, who did all sorts of public exhibitions of uh, alternating current. He patented alternating current in the mid-1920s. Uh, he was said to be able to recite whole chunks of Goethe's Faust as a party piece, and he issued this photograph, which people now think was double exposed in the 20s as a souvenir, which shows, quote, millions of volts being chucked at Tesla in a cage. And I can't but believe that uh, this, is, um, this is one of the influences on, on Frankenstein. Okay, remember the drawing? We go from there to there, and I think via there. This is um, uh, Goya, the Chinchillas, uh, Caprichos. Uh, it's uh, one of his Caprichos series, and it's set in a lunatic asylum in Spain in the uh, uh, 1810s. And on the left is, I think, the origin of the makeup for Frankenstein. Uh, there were copies of this circulating around Universal Studios, and Jack B. Pierce, the makeup man, I'm sure, I can't prove it, but I'm sure he must have seen it. There he is applying the makeup to Karloff. So instead of being this rather beautiful creature with lustrous black hair, who's been pieced together from bits with great care, he turns huge cranium, bolt, etc. They couldn't quite work out what he should look like. This was a preview card when Bela Lugosi was going to play the creature, and um, uh, it was obviously slightly different, you know, that uh, 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 no woman ever felt his white-hot kit, you know, all this stuff. It's all, it's all a bit much, and he's sort of giant in some way. Or this, which is a series of makeup models where they were toying with the idea of how to present the creature. And if you look at bottom, top, bottom right, at one point he was going to be a robot. I told you I get a reference to the robot exhibition. Uh, and the bolt in Karloff's neck is the last residue of the robotic version of the creature. It's fiendishly difficult to adapt Frankenstein. You know, it's three volumes. Volume one, Victor Frankenstein's autobiography. Volume two, The Creature's autobiography and the framing device of Walton, the Arctic explorer. A play came out in 1928 by Peggy Webling, which tried to uh, adapt it, but it was rather like the 1820s uh, play. He ends in an avalanche. And uh, they struggled and struggled, and obviously they were struggling also. I mean, the, the middle bottom, you're supposed to look like Charles Lawton for some reason, and, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Um, when visualizing it, however, one thing they definitely used was Fuseli's painting, The Nightmare, 1782. Look at the lady prone on the bed with the nightmare sitting on her chest and the horse, the sightless horse looking behind. That's a still from Frankenstein. And instead of the horse, you've got Karloff standing at the window. It's clearly taken from Fuseli. And even on the poster. So in visualizing it, they actually chose a painting that dated from roughly the right period, as indeed did Goya's Las Chichillas. It's alive. In the original play, it lives, was the great line. But from 1931 onwards, it's alive. Just to remind you of the Hollywood version, designed by Charles D. Hall, an architect from Norwich. That's Castle Frankenstein, <laughs> rather. Okay, let's have the uh, final DVD extract, please, just to remind you. Remember, Mary Shelley just wrote, I gathered the instruments of life around me, full stop. That's all she wrote. But this is what we got in 1931. <laughs>
Also, they added uh, this vertically challenged research assistant called Fritz, who goes to collect a brain from the University of Goldstadt and drops it, <laughs> and instead picks this one up, which is rather a shortcut. That's the whole of Vol 2 of Frankenstein in one moment. Uh, there we go. And then, as I say, the sequel, 1935, where the Bride of Frankenstein, again, to get it wrong, because it's not the Bride of Frankenstein, it's the Bride of the Creature, her makeup was based on Nefertari, whose bust had been discovered by German archaeologists in the 1920s, and they decided to make Elsa Lanchester look like that. Okay, postscript. The name of Frankenstein, usually wrongly applied to the creature rather than the scientist, lives on as a label to be applied to all current anxieties about science. Chemistry and chemical warfare in the 1920s, after the gas used in the First World War. Um, Medical research in the 1930s, nuclear physics in the 1950s, DNA and molecular biology in the 1960s, test tube babies, as they were then called, in the 1970s, in vitro fertilization and bioethics in the 1980s, the Human Genome Project in the 1990s, and Frankenstein Foods and Designer Babies Today, as the director said. The prefix Frankenstein has been applied to all of these. In summer 2003, preparing for a book I wrote on scientists in the cinema, I reenacted a famous experiment which started life in 1957 with Margaret Mead, was refined by D.W. Chambers in 1983, and it was called 
the Draw a Scientist experiment. And my sample was taken from state primary schools in the Bath region of England, the seven to 11 year old age group. I asked the headmasters, mistresses at assembly to distribute pieces of A4 paper. And on one side, the children were to write their name, their form, their age and their gender. And on the other, they had 10 minutes to draw a scientist. The point was to elicit gut reactions about the image of the scientist in those children's minds, the popular stereotypes which had got into the cultural drinking water. And not through Mary Shelley's doing, the mad scientist, of course, entered popular culture with Frankenstein. Over 60% of both genders included the following elements. Lab coat, frizzy hair, spectacles, a bodily disability, usually taking the form of spectacles, but sometimes other things. Lots of detail about the shoes, including brand names. <laughs> Some included laboratory rats. Most looked deranged. None of the boys drew girls. Half of the girls drew girls, but the other half of the girls didn't draw girls, they drew boys. So I then asked the schools who taught primary science, what equipment did they use? Did they have bubbling glassware? Did they wear lab coats? Did they have spectacles? Did they have hair like Einstein? No, the science mistress was very often a woman. They didn't use bubbling glassware for health and safety reasons. They never wore lab coats unless they were showing around the public relations people. And uh, basically the equipment consisted of botany, electric circuitry, and simple domestic recipes. So the point was that this image of the scientist comes entirely from the culture rather than from the lived experience of the children. And the image of the mad scientist actually got worse um, as they got older. And of course it comes from comics, from stand-up comedians, from films, from uh, video games, from virtually every image that you can think of. Um, so that story told by Mary Shelley on June the 17th, 1816, has got absolutely so far into the culture that, as I said in the beginning, it is now the real creation myth. Thank you very much. Okay, come on everybody, let's go. To um, have, a, have a discussion about some of the issues, um, and as we heard at the beginning, we have Alice Roberts, we have Ben Russell, the curator of the Robots Show, and Kim Newman, who is the authority on all things horror. Uh, there we go, I think that's yours, is it? Um, can I just ask as the first question, um, why do we think that Frankenstein has survived? Why has it endured so much? I mean, after all, it's a sort of throwaway story in June 1816, and yet 200 years later, it's absolutely everywhere. Alice, what do you think? Why has it endured? I think in terms of the book, um, and coming and reading it again, fairly recently for um, preparation for a BBC4 documentary I made about Frankenstein, I was surprised at how naive the language was and therefore accessible still. Um, and I was also really surprised, and I think I've mis I totally misremembered having read it as a teenager, because I, I thought she described in quite a lot of detail, uh, quite a lot of detail, how she'd made the monster, or how, how Frankenstein had made the creature and how he'd animated him, and she doesn't describe that. And I think that's part of the secret. I think the, the lack of detail there means that we can take it, um, we can reimagine it, and, uh, and we, can, uh, you know, we can still imagine it happening in the, in the present context with our present knowledge of which science. Which is the function of myth, in a way. It's a sort of receptacle into which we can pour things, mm. isn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think, Kim? Why is it endured? 
I think that like the <laughs> the other big themes that you did in your series, uh, you know, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, it's sort of unfinished. It's a it's a multivalent myth, isn't it? There are so many different interpretations. Uh, I like the fact that you can go and do I was a teenage Frankenstein. Yeah, there are kind of rock and roll versions. There are porn versions. There's something about this story that's worth going back to and telling over and over again. And I and what we've concentrated on tonight, yeah, you know, the creation myth of Frankenstein. Um, yeah, a bunch of people telling contradictory stories of how it happened. I mean, um, in in my sort of other hat as a, a fiction writer, this evening, you know, listening to your description, I saw there's a story there that hasn't been told that's really interesting, and I might go away and do it. And it's something. There's an absence in all those um, accounts, which Polidori confirms existed, but no one mentions it. What was Claire's story? Because Polidori says he's the only one who hasn't had a story, and he mentions her in the cast list. So it's a story that three other people suppressed. Yeah, Mary in particular. Yeah, essentially her cousin avoids it. So there's something there. Yeah, and thinking, well, maybe I'll go away and write that yeah. at some point. Yeah, so here we are, two hundred years later. There's still material. Yeah. There's still stuff that's worth playing with. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, the endurance of Frankenstein. I th- uh, what I like about it is just how how much is left to the imagination. Can you hear us, by the way? Yeah. Only just closer to the mic. Yeah. Can you hear that? Okay. Yeah, I think oh, it's better. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Always defeated by the technology. Yeah. Um, I, I like how much is, 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 is left in imagination. Just a slight suggestion, as you say, with the, the creation scene, which is one sentence, and then everything that's, that's, that's fed out from it. And, you know, with, with my robot hat on, I'm, I'm sorry to say I've got my robot hat on at the moment. This is one of the, the, you know, the, recurring, the recurring features that, 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 you know, when you look at things like the automata, uh, New Chatel, Jack Adrills, and so on, just how much was a very small piece of suggestion, just the slight up and down movement of the breath, just a slight little tiny death flick of the wrist. But suddenly we sort of grasp onto that and then we, 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 our imagination takes it and runs with it. Of course, that, that's exactly what's happened, as, as you say, in the, in the story of what's happened since. Why do you think it is? This must be part of your theme, I suppose, with the robots. Why are we obsessed with creating things in our own image? Why do robots have to look like human beings? Well, of course, of course the, the thing is that they don't. Well, they do sometimes. They do. They do. Well, they, they have square heads, but you know. I, I, I've had endless, endless arguments with roboticists saying, "Like, why are you going to do this thing about bloody humanoids?" Because if, if we're sick of, you know, I had one one uh, toy uh, uh, engineer from from Honda and said, "You know, if I see the Terminator again, I'm going to scream." But but um, uh, it's it's what we do. It's this, you know the anthropomorphic tendency that actually we 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 we, we take we. Like, like you create portraiture or sculpture or anything like that, you, you, you take a piece of mechanism and you, you give it your own form. It's just what we do. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Why, why we want to make things in our own image? I think, that, I think that in robotics there's a desire to create things that we're going to interact with um, in a fairly natural way. Although I think that, that creates a, a, a level of... Uh, a sort of a sort of frisson of uncertainty and, a, uh, and, it, and it can be quite disturbing to be interacting with something which is you know it looks quite human and a bit like those all beautiful automata from Neuchatel that look quite human and, and and yet they're not so so i actually find that 
um, closeness to human is quite disturbing. I say those those um, automata are a lot less disturbing if you see them with the lights on. When I visited, <laughs> they, you, they didn't have the wonderful lighting that you obviously got for your show. Yeah, we, we yeah. lights off and had our own yeah. lights. They actually look rather charming. Uh, uh, I, like, I mean, essentially, they're music boxes, and we like those, right? But you're right, there is something disturbing about but it's like why why are there broken dolls on the covers of, of horror paperbacks in the 1970s there's something about things that look like us but it don't but where it doesn't work if they look like us completely we just accept them there has to be well, something uh, off about them there, there's there's something with robots called uncanny valley we're happy with something that looks a little bit like us as soon as it gets mm. too much like us our, our liking of it drops off a cliff mm. um that that is the uh, that, 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 that is something which, uh, which, which in, with robots, are struggling with. But there's also, uh, beyond the uncanny, there's the question of actually what, what makes them uncanny is we don't actually understand what the source of their mm -hmm. agency is. Now, that is coming back to a Frankenstein because, of mm -hmm. course, he created this uh, the monster. But actually, well, where is the source of its, you know, its origin? Mm -hmm. uh, that's questionable and it's very troubling. And what the, what the, the so problems of adapting Frankenstein is what the monster looks like. Really, only Jack Pierce got it right because the monster has to be so hideous that even well-intentioned noble good people have to react with disgust and violence it has to be somewhat you know his presence has to be such a violation and the trouble is if you look at i don't know robert de niro's version he just looks like a guy who's a bit down on his luck you know i mean there are, yeah um uh, or someone who's been battered around a bit but, a car but I, I think it's ambiguous in the novel yeah. you know there's that famous paragraph where Frankenstein thinks about it. He says, beautiful, you know, great God, mm. I'd chosen his limbs with great care and they were put together beautifully. And you get that illustration that Mary mm. saw. But there's something about his eyes. Mm. And when he looks at his eyes, he's terrified because he's dead behind the eyes, this yeah. chap. Uh, and so I don't know how you put that over in a movie. Yeah, no, it's really you, you difficult. have to make him look like, you know, Boris Karloff yeah. in order to be frightened of him, don't and you? And that is a, a, a brilliant design. I, f I mean, I find it fascinating. There have been upwards of a hundred different Frankenstein movies and different versions of how he looks. And yet, come Halloween, no one's going to be wearing a Robert De Niro mask to, <laughs> to represent the Frankenstein monster. Yeah, The Karloff is the one we go back to. It's uh, one of the... Uh, it, it may even be that if it hadn't been for Karloff and Jack Pierce, Frankenstein the novel would now maybe be remembered on about a level of... Vathek, yeah, I mean, stuff that we like and we know about, yeah. yeah, but it's certain that the universal pictures put it back into popular culture and, it's, and, and actually probably rendered it functionally immortal as a myth. Right. Um, it could easily have died out. There were many, um, you know, 19th century popular stories, I don't know, the Corsican brothers or whatever, that, yeah. that nobody now really cares about. Yeah. yeah, but Frankenstein is still, uh, it's it, what they call in the business an active franchise. Yeah. 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 Alice, I was going to ask you, you know all about anatomy and things. Um, how close are we to building an artificial human today? Um, if, if you were writing <laughs> Frankenstein now, with yeah. the latest science, what would it be like? I think you'd 3D print it. Definitely. Um, you know, we're, we're getting pretty close with, with bits of the body, with mm. tissues of the body um, and, and with organs. Um, you still have that problem of how to animate it, obviously. Mm. Um, and you also have a massive problem when you get to the brain. Um, we, can, we can 3D print things like cartilage for ears or, you know, bits of joints and things. Um, 
the brain is still this ridiculously complex thing with, you know. Send Fritz off to the University yeah. of Goldstadt. You know, <laughs> yeah. <abnormal> brain. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, the, um, the latest film version of Frankenstein uses a 3D printer. Um, um, Bernard Rose's Frankenstein. Um, Set in the present day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but it's interesting, but I mean, when, when it does shade into real science because when Christian Barnard did the first heart transplant, he said, I feel like Frankenstein. You know, it was in, it, he, you know, it was so interesting that a, a serious scientist should say that, the first transplant. I'm just thinking, taking that further, what's happened in the last half century, yes, there's 3D printing, are there other developments? Well, presumably prosthetic surgery. Yes, prosthetic surgery, but also, um, I suppose, um, stem cell research as well, um, which, which often goes hand in hand with 3D printing. Um, that, you know, what you're doing is 3D printing a, a collagen matrix, a matrix out of protein that stem cells can then go and seed themselves in um, and then develop into a particular tissue. Um, so I think, you know, all of those things grow, get us closer to making something. Rather than assemble one. Yeah, you don't get dead bits of things. You actually yeah. grow a living one. Yeah, there's one interesting conundrum in Frankenstein, which is that he's eight foot tall, the creature, and I've I've been I've worried for years about that. I mean, if if he got bits of other people's bodies, why is he eight foot? And there's a little clue. There's actually I'm sorry, that's the sort of person I am. I worry about these. The um, uh, there's a clue in the novel where, so, where Frankenstein says, "I haunted." Uh, graveyards, charnel houses, and slaughterhouses. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some animal in the creature. <laughs> Do you? Why is he going to a slaughterhouse? He's probably got some animal thigh bone or something, which is why he's eight foot. I think I imagined. Think? I think I imagined that he was just getting bits of bits of flesh from uh, yeah, from the slaughterhouses. Yeah. I mean, okay, um, maybe he wears you know uh, asphalt spreader shoes yeah, like Karloff, which puts yeah. another foot on him. But that's no, odd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah he's stuck a few extra vertebrae in. <laughs> in yeah. the, the the version I wrote, which was a play recently called Frankenstein on Ice, I suggested that the process <laughs> Frankenstein used to bring the monster to life, if you applied it to a normal-sized person, they'd explode. It had, yeah, it had to be like a cast-iron oh. constitution. I, I said he was like the Brunel of genetic engineering. <laughs> yes, the, yeah, this great yeah. sort of 19th century bolt it together. Lumbering machine. And it would have yeah. to be big. And there's a, a sequence in where they try it on someone smaller and, and yeah, the eyes pop out and all this kind of stuff right, because okay. Frankenstein creates a being who is... Who's going to last? I mean, the, the, uh, he, he doesn't necessarily die at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was going to ask, do, do robots come life-size or do they tend to be huge sometimes? They, they, they do come life-size. They, they do tend to be very huge as well. I think that the issue is, we, we know, we, we'd be very good, at, I suppose, uh, I'm not using the term out of, out of, out of, out of turn, uh, we'd be very good at the gross anatomy of, uh, mm -hmm. of a Frankenstein, you know, sticking the lumps together. But... The the animation is the problem, as as you say. You know, uh, I remember Grey Water saying to, to to try and to try and build a human brain would cost something like two trillion dollars and, and and take up a warehouse the size of the museum, and, and actually that's the you know that's the the, the elusive spark uh, for all of the, all of the uh, the electronic the electric effects is is still lacking, and I think giving it embodiment and making it work. Is 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 is, is going to is going to fail? I think I'm a bit cynical about but it. But that was the whole debate about vitalism. You know, the the, the divine spark that sets you going was really mm. what the whole debate was about. Where does it come from? You know, they were mm. worried about that yeah. in 1816. Mm. Yeah. Which would be How a do you reason get it for doing it. <laughs> to say, yeah. yeah, but you might if if it turns out there is a divine spark, you've wasted two trillion dollars. <laughs> um, yeah. But you can. But then again, maybe that's a, a discovery that would be worth two trillion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's rather interesting looking at the, um, the, the later visions of Frankenstein, that it, it blends together um, the biological with the, the sort of technological. 
And you know, maybe maybe if you were to make a wooden Frankenstein, you could do most of the body um, quite easily. Um, you can't do the brain using biological uh, building blocks at the moment. But if you were to make a silicon-based brain, uh, if you were to get that to interact with a, a, a biological body, then you could do it. The brain doesn't have to be on site. We're going to make Frankenstein by the end of this evening. You, you can have a Wi-Fi brain. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah, have to be in your skull. Just a thought. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But you know, I mentioned that, that Frankenstein uh, embodies you know the anxieties of the moment. The repertoire, as you say, mm. Kim, the repertoire remains constant. Yeah. So basically, it's a sort of mythological story, a kind of creation myth. But the science to which it's applied has changed, you know, quite radically. Mm. As I said, you know, chemistry in the twenties, medicine in the thirties, uh, nuclear physics. And what would be what, Alice, what do you think the anxieties today would be if you wanted a book that, that really hit the audience in their anxiety uh, uh, motor? What, 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 would the, what would the anxiety be about, do you think? I think the anxiety today, and, and you mentioned it at the end of your talk, Chris, is, is about DNA and is about the ability to um, take bits out of DNA, put bits back in. Um, gene editing is quite interesting because you are then talking about not necessarily transposing a gene from uh, one species into another, um, but looking for a, a version of a gene which already exists in that species and then spreading it throughout that species. So it's a bit like a, um, a, very, a very quick form of selective breeding. Um, but people are, people are nervous about this as well. And I think that idea that you're sort of tinkering with the code of life um, we've been tinkering with the code of life for a very long time and people are happy with doing it from the outside. It's about doing it from the inside that people have an issue with. Um, and we do see a lot of fiction around this. But one of the things I really, that really annoys me about Frankenstein and really um, I'm, I'm annoyed on behalf of Mary is that she didn't create this no. meme of the mad no. scientist that's in all of our mm. heads. You know, and, and those pictures that those children were drawing mm. is the picture that everyone has of a mad scientist, and it's nothing to do with Mary Shelley at all. Mm. No, no, it's true. And as I say, I mean, for those who want to read this, the facsimile, the Bodleian thing, it, it is quite clear that the first draft was much more pro-science mm -hmm. and much more knowledgeable about science. You know, as I say, the curriculum at Ingolstadt mm -hmm. is a bit like Humphrey Davies' lectures. And yes, you know, Frankenstein thinks that it's too unambitious, too empirical, too detailed, too specialised. Mm -hmm. Why can't we do the big questions like the medievalists, you know, and all that sort of thing? Yes, he still does that. And yes, there's a, there's a sort of moral message about overreaching, but it's not mm -hmm. nearly so gloomy mm -hmm. as the cut-down version, which is the one that everybody reads. And uh, what Victor yeah. is worried about is what if they breed? Yeah. And that's, you know, the yeah. thought is, what are the rest of us un-gene-tweaked going to feel like if we raise generations of people who are yeah. generally better than us? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's your point, Alice, about yeah. spreading the... Yes, exactly. I, 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 we can't even get a robot to stand up and open a yeah. door without falling over. <laughs> what are we worried about, yeah. really? Yeah. It sounds like Boris Karloff. You know, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think we've got nothing to fear. I think we've, you know, if, if, if a forthcoming robot apocalypse has already happened, hasn't it? <laughs> Most of the food you eat has been packed by robots. <laughs> when you use a self-service checkout, it's a robot. It might look like us. It won't be very effective. I've, I've got no worries at all. Yes, but that's different to yeah. genetically modified crops, for example. Which yeah, it is. About. Yes, I, th that's much more insidious yeah. and terrifying. Yeah. I think robots are just these big things that fall over. Yeah. Yeah, but I know. think, I mean, I. I, I, reading, reading Frankenstein, I didn't uh, even the shorter version. I don't think it is about it. Didn't, or to me, mm. it didn't seem to be about 
the dangers of science per se. It seemed to be about yeah. the dangers of anyone pursuing something single-mindedly without thinking about the consequences mm. and without talking yeah. to people. Um, and, and for me, that's the sort yes. of moral message of it. And then you can then put that back to science and say, um, actually, um, we're right to be concerned about where science and technology is taking us in the future, but it is a social endeavour and we should be talking about it. There's always got to be an ethical framework to it. Yes. yes. Yeah, Frankenstein's a good scientist, but a bad father. Yes, and uh, you know, I was mentioning the sort of domestic side of it. That's, I think that's really important, isn't it? That, uh, you know, Frank, uh, the creature is a motherless child mm -hmm. and he gets his own back on Frankenstein by destroying his family yeah. one by one. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, he's not, a, he's not a good scientist. <laughs> a good scientist pursues their work yeah. uh, whilst engaging with oh, the wider right. social value yeah. of it. He's not a good scientist. Also, he'd have applied for research funding and uh, yeah. he did. there'd have been a team with him, no, wouldn't he? Did do it he behaves like a backstreet abortionist. I mean, he's up yeah. in this, in this attic digs. room working yeah. by himself, completely in isolation, rather a monomaniac. That's, isn't there a theme about masculinist science as well? I mean, all the scientists are boys. Yeah, and the motherless yeah. child. I mean, that's a strong theme in there. And I think Mary Shelley was, by the time she was Mary Shelley, she was a bit frightened about the way Percy Shelley was going. I mean, he was getting very extreme, very radical, very unconventional, and she was much more of a conventional person. And I think the, the sort of anti-Promethean thing about it can get out of hand if you're not careful. Mm. There's a domestic thing going on there as well, I think, probably. Yeah. Okay, can we open it up to the audience? Um, are there any questions you'd like to ask about Frank? So we have some microphones at the back and at the side, I think. Oh, no, they're all at the back. Wave a hand. Yeah, gentleman there. Yep, over there. Oh, so a forest of hands over there. Hang on, let's have the chap in the shirt first and then the chap in the tie. Sorry I identify you with... Uh, he's coming. Uh, it's a very large auditorium, so it takes a moment. Hello. There we go. Thank you. Hello, yes, uh, uh, you, you, you're touching really on what I was wanting to pursue uh, just then. Um, you, Christopher, wants us to read the great work of literature, which is the 1818 original, of course. Uh, say some more about what was lost between that and the 1831 popular version. Gosh. Um, well, partly, uh, I think, uh, refer uh, explicit references to the vitalist controversy, you know, the detail of the spark of life seems to go. Some of the, when the creature um, uh, begins to get the hang of language and can't stop talking, uh, you know, once he gets the hang of it, he can't, he can't stop. Uh, there's quite a lot about political justice, which seems to go. So the Godwinian radicalism goes. Godwin by then is dead, and Mary is on her own. Um, and, uh, and it gets grimmer, uh, I think. You know, it's darker, uh, partly because the digressions have been pruned. Um, I mean, I've never laid them out next to each other, but there's, I, I think it's less digressive and more of a sort of straightforward narrative uh, as befits a popular edition. But the main thing is, by framing it with that introduction, by saying, you know, thunder and lightning, spooks, ghost stories, uh, the genesis of Frankenstein was a gothic novel, she seriously distorts. I mean, one of the, all the things we've been talking about, you know, the subtlety of it, the science of it, the domestic tragedy of it, gets seriously distorted by that preface. And by claiming sort of maternity of her own book for the first time in that preface, she's, whether it's a commercial consideration, because she needs the money, and she did, uh, you know, she wants a bestseller, so she frames it in that way. But it, it's an odd thing to do, and it's coloured people's reading of the popular edition ever since. It's, those are the main things, I think. Um, but it, 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 it feels less 1816 science and more 1831 bestseller, I think. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Anne Mellor, who did a biography of, as you probably know, of Mary Shelley, 
goes into great detail in, in, the, in the comparison and finds it uh, a more conventional book, but a more positive book. But the really interesting change, I think, is between the draft and the novel, where it really reads extremely well as a very different book, much more positive, much more sort of uh, ambitious in a way, uh, and much more starry-eyed about science. Uh, uh, and uh, reading that, the 155 page, but I'm surprised no one's published it as a popular edition, actually, because that's Mary Shelley without anybody else touching it in her notebooks. Then you get the rhetoric coming in as Percy adapts it, you know, and, and alters her English. Um, and then you get the cut-down version. I mean, the really pure version is these notebooks that she wrote that summer. Um, I, d I do recommend you, you, you read those. It's a very different experience. But it's mainly losing context and making it a straightforward Gothic story. And thereby hangs a tale. That's what we all think it is now, I think. I mean, I do pity A-level students while it's still on the syllabus, because it's a very, very... If you read the triple-decker version, it's not an easy read. It really isn't. It's, it's, I think it's quite a difficult book, actually. But uh, anyway, yeah. Do you, uh, Kim, have you got any Actually, no, on? I don't think it's that difficult. Um, Alice was saying earlier that the prose reads a lot easier than um, Charles Darwin. Yeah, and I think for something from 1818, right. Right. it's actually quite zippy if you sit, sit down and read the other stuff. Because yeah. we have all gone back and read you know, the, the Northanger novels, all yeah. that kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. other stuff from the period. I, I think it, because it is a, a young woman's book, it's direct in some ways, although it has that Chinese boxes structure. And, and it's full of stuff that's really surprisingly quotable. I love the passage where the, the monster says no one takes him seriously because I have no friends and I have no property. Mm. And that's sort of... <laughs> it's a lightning strike to now yeah. as to, to what it's like to be yeah, excluded from society through no fault of your own. I can see why, um, you know, why teenagers have related to this book ever since. It's a book by a teenager, yeah. very much about being a big kid, about being so blundering and, you know, you kill the people just by getting near them. Yeah. Uh, and being shunned and thrown out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also, of course, been reclaimed by women's studies courses, particularly mm. in the United States, as a fa... Fa well, you've got Mary Wollstonecraft theorizing mm. the vindication of the rights of woman, and Mary Shelley allegorizing mm. it, in a way, and that that's kept it alive in, in academe, I think. Mm. You know, that's very, very strong, particularly in the United States, I think. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen there with the tie, just in front of the one who spoke before. Yep, round we go. Yep, that's it. Yeah, hello. In, um, that when Mary Shelley was writing a novel, there was some tension between religion and science. Do you think that the idea that the creature is devoid of a soul is plays a big part in the story? Yes, it's very well. Well, uh, I don't want to. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, there's a big debate about is God in the book? You know, because on the face of it, it looks a very godless book, which is extremely surprising in 1816, and particularly since you know. Uh, Professor Lawrence had lost his chair for saying that, and they knew that. Uh, and, um, uh, and, 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 and so it's very difficult to say, but you're right, that there's a sense, uh, you know, insofar as the debate is about um, not just the body, but the soul being activated by the vital spark, that's clearly in there somewhere, but we've rather lost it in reading it today, because, you know what I mean, it's between the lines, and they'd have seen it in 1816, but we don't quite see it today. But what, what do you think, Kim? I, mean, I always think that the God in the book is, is the God of Paradise Lost, not of the Bible. It's Milton's God. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I, 
I'm because so many of the Frankenstein movies have that, you know, he tra he tampered in God's domain yeah. stuff. Well, you it, expect, now I know what it yeah, feels like to be God. You yeah. expect it to be in the book, and it's not. Yeah. And I think that's. Yeah, that's partly giving science props rather than the thing that you have in 1950s science fiction films where all scientific endeavour is essentially demonic. Yeah. Um, and I don't think Mary Shelley meant that. I think she's much more in line of, um, I don't know, David Cronenberg's The Fly, where he says, well, this experiment didn't work, but that's no reason to, to write <laughs> off an entire field of human endeavour. Yeah. yeah, As he said, just put screens on it next time. <laughs> you know? Yes, I don't know. It's, it's a very interesting question you, you ask, actually. And, uh, I mean, there's been much, much written about this, but... Uh, uh, you know, William Godwin would have said, uh, there's, no, there's no role for God in this. Um, and, of course, in the, the versions of Faust she was reading, there were lots of devils dragging Faust off to hell for what he did. There's certainly no devils that the problem is overreaching and overambition and, you know, isolation and all these other things, uh, rather than devils. So you don't get the other side of the equation, but I don't know. It's interesting, you know, uh, taking a long view of these things, of course, going back way before when Mary Shelley was writing, um, there's very deep, tangible links between religious belief and building automata uh, mechanisms, all sorts of Satan, mm -hmm. mechanical monks, uh, all mm -hmm. sorts of the crucifixion. The golem and the Jewish the community. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, um, so that separation is, is, is interesting. Perhaps historically it's a bit of a... I think what's fascinating is that, is that her novel then allowed people to have that debate, to explore those ideas, where they were getting shut down so effectively um, if, you, if you came straight out with them. That, that Dr. Lawrence could be, you know, would have to publicly renounce yeah. his ideas about the, <coughs> about the, uh, about the lack of the soul, or the, you know, the fact that he said that, you know, that basically the, the, the mind or whatever the soul was was just the function of the human body, and and had to publicly renounce that. Yeah. Um, whereas she was able to put that into a novel, and people could still be thinking about it. No, it's interesting. I mean, Lawrence loses his, his chair for saying that, whereas Richard Dawkins gained one at Oxford <laughs> for saying much the same thing. But a lot's happened in between. Uh, someone over here, I've been rather going that side. Yep, on the end there. Can you hear me all right? Yep. Um, about the non-existence or not having a soul element, uh, cognitive science would probably say, um, if you look at the modular way of um, examining human thought, that you have um, a template for a person, but it has something counterintuitive. So it's, it's an entirely unconscious reaction. That's why it's so difficult to visualise it in film, because I mean, she brings it out in the book beautifully. There's that just almost incomprehensible... Um, what particularly are you thinking of in the book? Well, the, well not just the eyes. The, the yes, something I see. about the way the that... The revulsion that he Yeah, feels. the revulsion yes. is something that is so inherent, intrinsic, that you can't even put your finger yes. on what it is. Yes, and, and you know, as Kim was saying, you, in, 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 uh, in films you take a shortcut by giving him a big cranium and making him look repulsive. Um, I mean, some people think that Jack Pierce, you know, I think he got mm. it from Goya, but some people think he got it from images of disability, an acromegalic mm. condition or uh, someone with a serious pituitary problem, mm. that photographs of that look rather like Boris Karloff. And so the other becomes a disability. Uh, and there's no sense of that in the novel, but there certainly is in the film. This is a sort of uh, disabled baby brother, almost, of Frankenstein. 
and, uh, and that, that's sort of projected onto it. But it's interesting you say that, that um, she doesn't need to say it. It's there, it's mm -hmm. implied. But in movies, I'm afraid, you have to be terribly literal and uh, you have to say it. Well, if you're Hollywood, you do. Yeah. I also think volume two <laughs> suggests that he does have a soul. Um, he commits to being evil. I think you can't do that unless you've got a moral choice. Mm, okay. um, yeah, no, that's true. Christopher, I think um, if, if people have um, more questions, maybe they can nab you and, at the end and also the panel. Right. And um, That's known as a shock ending, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> I'm being the Hollywood director. Um, just some comments to, to conclude. Um, the first is uh, something that I haven't had a chance to talk to Christopher about yet, and perhaps he and Kim know about. If you think Frankenstein is a weird book, there is one that's weirder, and a very interesting story, which is written by Mary Shelley's brother. And this is a very interesting story. So William, William Godwin the Younger wrote a book uh, about uh, 15 years after Frankenstein called Transfusion. Uh, and it's a very weird book because it's clearly inspired by the fact that not long after Frankenstein was written were the first proper scientific uh, experiments in blood transfusions. So there's something about the family, not just Mary, but also her brother. The other thing that emerges for me is that having been brought up to believe that Shelley was a hero, he's emerging as a bit of a villain, actually, in your account here. Um, I think the other thing that was fascinating, Christopher, was that although you were talking about the magpie-like ability of the early Hollywood people to get cultural references, what it also shows, I think, is how cultured they were in terms of taking references from Goya and from ancient Egypt, an astonishing me memory of just how cultivated those early Hollywood pioneers were. Uh, I think also for me there's a remaining mystery, which is in that clip from The Bride of Frankenstein, what accent are they speaking in? I mean, I mean, is that supposed to be some American version of Pride and Prejudice? I mean, it was the weirdest accent I've ever heard. And then, of course, the main thing I've taken away from this evening is that there's a massive opportunity for the Science Museum to create grow-your-own-monster packs. Uh, and Alice gave us one or two uh, clues, so I think the financial security of the Science Museum, if not the safety of humanity, um, is, is now secure. But first of all, Christopher, thank you for your amazing wide-ranging talk. You know so much and uh, your enthusiasm is infectious. And the panel as well, um, uh, for, their, for their perspectives. Um, what we've learned is that Ben is incredibly complacent um, and sees no problems at all with robots. That, that you have just five days a week, so I shall be seeing you tomorrow, Ben, for a discussion. Uh, Kim is going to write the unknown story from the villa, which is clearly we're all desperate to hear. And Alice um, feels that, by and large, that Frankenstein would have failed his peer review. Um, <laughs> and on that note, can, can I ask you to give our, our panel and our lecturer a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you.